The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. This is Matthew 4, verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, It's good to see you. Welcome to those of you who are visiting this morning and those of you on the live stream. Uh, My name is Joe Corey, and I am an elder here at SVCC. And it is my honor and privilege to bring you the word this morning. So, one year ago today, on this Sunday, I woke up at 3 a.m. to catch an early flight to Madison, Wisconsin, um, for a series of meetings um, with an organization that I lead. As the sun rose and I waited for my first flight to depart here in Birmingham, my coughing began. It's allergy season, and we live in Alabama, so I didn't really think anything of it. By the time I landed in Madison, I was running a high fever, and by the, middle, or by the end of the day, um, in the middle of the night, I had raided my friend's medicine cabinet for med- uh, ibuprofen and cough medicine. The following 36 hours are still a little bit of a blur, as I fought to control my fever and keep my cough under control. By the time I started my journey home on that following Tuesday afternoon, the stock market was falling, sporting events had been canceled, the airport in Atlanta was a ghost town, and the world had come to a stop. I spent the next three days in bed before my, and thankfully, before my COVID fever finally broke. And when I finally emerged, from my coma to stand in line at Walmart for over an hour, we were all in the wilderness. This year um, has been, and I, I told myself, don't get emotional, man. Don't, you don't have to do it. But this year, has, it has been challenging, has it not? It has been challenging for many in our community. And I recognize for some of you, the COVID situation only extended what had already been a difficult season. But for most of us, the pandemic hit like a tsunami, overwhelming the relative comfort of our lives. The last year has impacted how we live, how we work, and how we worship. It has strained even our closest relationships and served to isolate us even further from each other. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that in the last 12 months, we have been challenged physically, emotionally, and spiritually in ways that we could have never imagined. And if I'm honest, and and I, I need to confess this, if I'm honest, I must confess, I've had moments this year where I've been angry at God, I doubted His provision over my life. And if I'm really sincere, I'm going to be really real with y'all. There's, there's been moments, not many, but there have been moments 
where I've even questioned the very faith that means so much to me. My deepest insecurities have never felt so exposed. But at at the same time, Shade, in this season, God has revealed His grace and my unrelenting need for Him in ways that I never had experienced before. As we've all learned in our own way this year, the spiritual battle that's waging around us is incredibly personal. The wilderness in which we find ourselves is where these battles often take place. It's where evil often resides, and it can be a lonely and scary place full of temptation. But shades, I bring good news. As we saw in our study of Revelation last year, as we're going to see today and throughout the rest of this series, we must persevere because Easter is coming. Amen. Easter is coming. Okay, so please hear me when I say that. I'm not saying that I believe that, I, that these temptations that are around us and that the issue that we're facing is going to magically disappear in 29 days. When I say Easter is coming, it is to remind you that we are living in the already and not yet. We are living in the already and not yet of God's kingdom promise. As we will see throughout our series, Christ's path to overcoming temptation leads directly to the cross. Shades, this season of Lent is a reminder to orient ourselves to that cross. The Easter tomb is empty. Christ has already won. But as, his, as followers of him, we must patiently wait to taste glory because God's not finished with his work yet. The passage we're going to explore today is a reminder of Christ's faithfulness to his Father. It shows us a model for how we can stay faithful despite the temptations we face, so that we may live in God's perfect will. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, let's open them up to Matthew chapter 4. Before I jump into the text itself, though, uh, I want to encourage you not to let your familiarity with this passage cause you to oversimplify it. There is a lot going on here. And before we dive into the story, it's crucial to take a moment and remind you of the context surrounding what we see. First, we should note, this, this is a story that Christ would have certainly had to tell his disciples because of the chronological timing of um, when it happens, it predates his meeting them. So there's no witnesses to this story. This is a, this is a minor detail Okay, But it's important because it gives us a glimpse into Jesus' self-perception as the Son of God. As we will see when we pair this with his response to Satan, we are given a picture of how he understands his relationship to Israel. Christ knows he is the Son of God. He recognizes God is testing him, just as God tested the Israelites. But where the Israelites failed their test, Christ passes. Second, 
we should not fail to see this in, event in um, isolation from Christ's baptism. Matthew in chapter 3 tells us when John baptized Christ, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Immediately following his baptism, Christ is then then led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And the use of that word then is really important here because it conveys the timing of the events. It's an immediate, it's an immediate thing. The Gospel of Luke's version of this story takes the opportunity to inter- insert Christ's genealogy between his baptism and being led into the wilderness. It's almost as if Luke feels the need to further emphasize the sonship of Christ that the voice from heaven so dramatically proclaimed. By inserting Christ's genealogy, Luke makes the direct link for his readers between Jesus and Adam. In each case, in each case it is clear that Christ is God's Son, whom the Spirit leads into the wilderness to be tested. We should also not overlook that following this passage, later in chapter 4, Christ begins his ministry and calls his first disciples. The sequence of events here is essential, all right, you guys? It's really important that we get this. So you have baptism, temptation in the wilderness, beginning of his ministry. As Brad shared last week, Matthew makes an intentional parallel between Christ and the Israelites in Exodus. Baptism by crossing the Red Sea, 40 years of testing in the wilderness, entering into the promised land. The echo between Christ's experience and the Israelites further emphasized the connection between Christ and God's chosen people. This context is crucial because it helps us to see why the Father leads Jesus into the wilderness in the first place. This may be obvious, but I should point out that here, the wilderness in this context is not the serene getaway we see on Instagram, okay, where we can kind of go like Netflix and chill, right, in our own little cabin, or sit comfortably around a glowing campfire without disruption from the rest of the world. According to both Revelation 18 and the rabbinic tradition, the wilderness is a place of demonic activity, and both Isaiah and Mark tell us the wilderness is full of wild animals. My inner child, I have, I have four kids. They're not small anymore. I went like this. They're all actually more like this now. But my inner child imagines the wilderness in this context to be like the land in Murray Syndic's famous book, Where the Wild Things Are. So where the wild things roared their terrible roars and gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes and showed their terrible claws. Remember, It's not when they were in bondage in Egypt that the Israelites encountered their most significant tests. It was after they left Egypt and were in the wilderness. In our context, the wilderness is a lonely, uncomfortable, and dangerous place where our desire for security and self-preservation is extremely tested. Jesus doesn't end up there by accident. He didn't take a wrong turn. His GPS didn't malfunction. And whoops, I'm in the wilderness. No. 
Just as God led the Israelites into the desert to test them, God purposely leads Christ into the wilderness knowing it's where he will also be tested. Okay, okay, so guys, I'm a college professor. That's what I do for my day job. And so I need to lay out all of my cards on the table here. Um, I think testing gets a bad rap in our society. Of course, the college professor would say that. So, okay, college students, before you guys throw anything at me, track with me for a second. Um, Testing is too often viewed as a negative thing. And so I want to challenge you guys to think about it differently. And I I know this may be hard to believe, especially for several of you who are here who are going to take a midterm of mine later this week, (laughs) right? But I don't test my students because I'm eager to make their lives miserable. I don't test my students because I can't wait to see them fail, okay? I test my students because it's an opportunity for them to show me what they've learned. And I realize this is a subtle difference, so track with me for a second, okay? My wife and I are gearing up for what is a parent's rite of passage. My oldest daughter, Abigail, turns 15 in early June. Parents, you know where this is going, (laughs) And so we, we just had this moment this week. We're in the process of signing her up for driver's ed this summer. Like, I feel like Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone where he's like, ah! <laughs> like, my, my baby girl my, is, is going ah! to drive, right? And so part of Abby's learning to drive means that she must pass a test to receive her learner's permit. She has to pass the driver's ed course. She gets to spend a year practicing how to drive with us. And then shortly after her 16th birthday, she'll take another test to receive her driver's license. It's my wife and I's responsibility to make sure she's ready. And I expect, actually I I already know, she's, she's really looking forward to that test and to the responsibility that comes after it. Passing the driver's test will be her opportunity to prove she's ready to drive. We need to remember the context of this passage because it tells us so much about the purpose of these temptations. If the Spirit is leading Christ into the wilderness, the place of demonic activities, predators, and prey, God is placing Jesus into a situation where he knows his son is going to be tempted. And he wants to see if Jesus is ready. How is he going to respond? Okay. So Satan may be the one doing the tempting, but God has a greater purpose here. Um, I realize I've been using the term tempting and testing interchangeably, so it's important here to point out that the Greek word Matthew uses for temptation is pyrazo. I don't know if that's how you say it in Greek. Andy, is that okay? Okay. Close enough. Close enough. All right. And so it's a verb. It means to test. Okay. Baptism, temptation, beginning of his ministry. Christ has completed his training. He's been baptized, and God has declared he is pleased with him. But now God takes Christ to be tested in the same way he tested Job and Israel because he knows it's an opportunity for Christ to reveal his true character. Jesus' response to this situation demonstrates that he fully understands who he is and why he is there. More importantly, it shows us that he is ready for more significant tests to come. 
those tests end on the cross. Christ is ready, God is pleased. As Brad mentioned to us last week, it's important to remember God will never tempt us into sin. Instead, He tests us to sanctify us, strengthen our faith, and draw us closer to Him. I love, I really love the picture that Brad gave to illustrate this point. As an artist, I'm an artist also, besides a professor, um, I really love that picture. It's the image of the metalsmith heating metal to test it. A couple of years ago, my family visited Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia, and during our time there, I, I kind of stumbled into the blacksmith shop with my kids. It was fascinating. Like, seriously, I spent an hour in there, and my kids literally had to drag me out. I stood transfixed as the smithy pounded out the metal and talked to us about the process of blacksmithing. If you've never seen this, they put metal into a glowing fire until it turns this beautiful, almost like hypnotic, bright orange. And so what is happening is the fire is burning away the impurities, and at the same time, it's strengthening the metal. What Brad didn't mention last week is that the heat also makes the metal malleable so that the blacksmith can shape it. Shades, when God tests you, he's not trying to trap you or to put you in a situation so he can watch you fail. When God tests you, it's because he's strengthening and shaping you. We are tested for our good, and in these passages we will see the perfect model to demonstrate how, tri- how we can triumph in this testing. So this is the context in which our passage today takes place. The Spirit leads Christ, the Son of God, who is fully man, and from the direct lineage of, of um, the first created son, Adam, into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. Satan will give his best shot to break him physically, which is what we saw last week uh, with the temptations uh, to transfer the rocks into bread psychologically, which we're going to see this morning, and spiritually, which is what we're going to learn about next week. Okay, so here we go. You ready to dive in? Matthew 4, verse 5 and 7. Then the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. As I mentioned, a lot is going on in this passage, um, but for me, like many of you, this will be the most challenging test of the three because it hits on my deepest insecurity, which is a lack of trust in God over my security. If you are the son of God, he said. I want to pause for a moment on that word if. If in this circumstance is small, but it's an incredibly powerful word, you guys. Think about this for a moment. If they love you. If you're good at your job. If you want to be successful. If you want to take care of your family. If you're smart. If you want to be popular. If you want to be part of the team. If only you loved me. Does this, does this ring familiar? If you are the Son of God. The special relationship that Jesus has with his Father, which the Father authoritatively declared at the Jordan, 
is now being questioned. With this one word, the devil is trying to drive a wedge between the son and his father by manipulating Christ and casting doubt on the essential nature of his sonship. Satan knows Jesus is the son of God, but he wants to see if Jesus, like the Israelites before him, when they were in the wilderness, will also doubt God's plan. So if you remember um, back to your Sunday school days, the Israelites are God's chosen people. He delivers them from Egypt's bondage. The Israelites witness this deliverance. Okay, they're there. They walk through the Red Sea. They taste God's provision of manna in the desert. But over time, they forgot their identity as God's children. Even though they had witnessed God's protection firsthand, they continually wanted proof that God was still with them. So the story of the water from the rock in Exodus 17, which will, this is going to play a key role later on, it just reminds us of Israel's doubt. In the story, the Israelites, still in the wilderness, stopped to camp, but there's a problem. There's no water source for them to drink from. So they find themselves in a circumstance in which their self-preservation is tested. Does this sound familiar? The Israelites' thirst for security leads them to question the very purpose of God's mission. They quarrel with Moses and they say to him, Why did you bring us out of Egypt just to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The moment things become uncomfortable, God's chosen people completely forget that it was God who provided for their every need. And they want God to prove himself once again. Part of me wants to just like scream at them and say like, dude, just trust the plan, right? But if I'm honest, I do this all the time. In response to their quarreling and pleading, Moses, and I have to think he was also probably pretty fed up with them, he goes to the Lord crying out, what shall I do with these people? And God responds with grace, telling Moses to strike the rock with his staff so water will flow from it and the people can drink. Once again, God shows up and he proves that he's not abandoned his people. After everything calms down, Moses does that thing that we see throughout the Old Testament where they give a name to the place that they want to remember. And so in this case, Moses names the place Massa and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling, because the Israelites tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord not among us? The Israelites failed to trust God's provision and protection over them. They failed their test. All right, let's return to Christ's test. It's important to note where the temptation takes place and the words Satan uses to tempt Christ here. In verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The temple in Jerusalem was God's dwelling place and the visible demonstration of God's presence among his people and protection, presence and protection over his people. Additionally, Jewish legend foretold that the coming Messiah would prove himself by leaping from the temple's highest point. So whether Satan physically takes Jesus to the temple or this is purely a vision, the text isn't clear about that, the setting for this temptation seems like a logical choice. 
Beyond the logic of the, tr- of the location, the tempter chooses his words carefully. And this choice of words demonstrate just how subtle and tricky temptation can be. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Is this, th- does this passage ring familiar to anyone? This is a passage from Psalm 91. And it's a deceitful misapplication of Scripture by Satan. So by quoting it, Satan hopes to use Moses' words. So Moses wrote Psalm 91. This is, keep that in mind. So Moses writes Psalm 91, and by using this, Satan hopes to use Moses' words to manipulate Jesus, Jesus' desire to follow God's commands in a sinful way. The devil tempts Jesus to test his sonship against God's pledge to protect his people. Satan dares Christ to do what the Israelites did in the wilderness when they found themselves thirsty and without water. Can you see it? Let me put it this way. It's, 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 like, it's like if Satan is saying, Hey Jesus, you sure about this whole Son of God thing? I mean, I know God just declared this at the Jordan River, but um, you've had a pretty tough month. You're hungry. You're tired. You seem a little stressed. And I know those wild animals can be terrifying at night. Where has your father been during all that time? Because I don't see him anywhere. Look, we're up here on top of the temple. The Jewish leaders are waiting for the Messiah. And they say he's going to reveal himself by jumping off of here. So let's, let's kill two birds with one stone. Let's test that father of yours and see if he'll do what Moses said he would. Satan is using scripture out of context to dare Jesus to test God. He wants nothing more than for Jesus to doubt God's will and to put God to the test just like the Israelites. Because Satan knows if Jesus doubts God's plan now, there is no way he won't doubt it when God's leading him to the cross. Do you guys see this? But good news, Shades, Christ is not a son of Adam. He's not Moses or a group of thirsty Israelites. He's the true Israel, the Son of God, who fulfills the Father's redemptive plan for his people. Jesus sees right through Satan, and we see this in how he responds. Christ goes directly to the heart of the issue by replying with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. It is also written, Do not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. This verse is a direct reference from Moses is second address to the Israelites in which Moses urges them to be obedient to God the exact verse here is you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa do you see the connection the context around this verse is also important directly following this statement Moses tells the Israelites in verse 17 through 19 You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land. I love that term, the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies before you, as the Lord has promised. Christ has passed the test. He sees Satan's motives, and he responds accordingly. It's as, it's as, if, um, it's as if Jesus is saying to the, to the devil, 
Jesus is saying to the devil, I am lonely, hungry, tired, and weak, but I still trust my Father to protect and provide for me. Furthermore, I know my Father has a bigger plan and purpose for my life, and I trust every part of it. You, my enemy, have been revealed. And when that plan unfolds at the foot of the cross, you will be defeated, the veil will be torn, and God's people will rejoice in my Father's glory. So my daughter Abigail, the same one who's about to learn how to drive, she told me that all good sermons should have three points. I don't know where she learned this, but it had to be here. So as a brief application, here they are. First, just as Christ is secure in his identity as God's son, we must also be secure in our identity as God's children. Just as Christ is secure in his identity as God's son, we must also be secure in our identity as God's children. Oh, shades, we live in a world full of temptations pointed directly at the heart of our identity. We also live in a culture that celebrates our individual identities and openly encourages us to define ourselves according to worldly wants and desires that exist outside of God's will. I feel this. I see this with my students, and I see this with my children. The pressure is enormous. But hold on to what is good in the sight of the Lord, because God is faithful to his people, and he has promised us the good land. Second, just as Christ trusts his Father, his Father's will over his own human desire for security, we must also trust God with our security. Just as Christ trusts his Father's will over his own human desire for security, we must also trust God with our security. Y'all, this one, this one hits me deep and touches, it really, it really, really touches the nerve of my greatest insecurities. We live in a society that tells us we have to have everything under control and figured out. We have to hold off on marriage or having kids until we can build a nest egg. We have to have a big 401k. We have to drive a car with the most up-to-date safety features or have the latest in home security. We have tracking devices on our phones, cameras in our kids' rooms, and heart rate monitors on our watches. Please hear me, Shades. These are all good things. But they are not good things if we let our desire for security distract us from God's greater purpose and calling in our lives. My heart, my, really, this, hap- this, is, this happens more than you would think, and it's really sad. But my heart breaks Every time a student of mine says they felt called to go into missions or ministry, but their parents encourage them to go into an area where they can make more money just for a short time, that's what they say, just for a short time. Or I hear about a couple that's called to start or expand their family, but they ignore that God-given desire because they believe their savings account needs to be just a little bit larger. It's, it's, trust me, it's never large enough. A friend feels led to leave a job in which they don't find any purpose, but works in misery for years because they're afraid they won't be able to support their family. Or a loved one is called to move across the country because 
but is fearful of what living away from home might be like. You know, I mean, you know this. We, we think these things, right? I could go on and on. Shades, we must remember, we are the children of the Most High God who has promised to care for our every need. Trust Him and His plan for your life. Third and finally, to persevere in midst the, in, to, excuse me, third and finally, to persevere in the midst of temptation, we must cling to Christ's victory on the cross. To persevere in the midst of temptation, we must cling to Christ's victory on the cross. Last week, um, Brad graciously pointed out that we shouldn't look for simple, simplistic narratives to fight temptation because the, in, the enemy is intentional and strategic about how he attacks each of us. Shades, this isn't a snowball fight. We are in the middle of an all-out war for our souls. Brad also mentioned Russell Moore's illustration of cattle willingly walking towards their slaughter because the meatpacking industry has figured out that the best way to keep cows calm was to eliminate any surprises and to keep them comfortably unaware of their situation. Brad didn't mention this, um, but there's a conveyor ramp. It's kind of like the con- you sit on the airport where you walk and then it moves you. So there's this conveyor ramp, and the cows don't even realize when they've stepped on it. And it lifts them up towards their moment of slaughter, and then it drops them into another conveyor belt below that then takes them off to be processed. The nickname, and this is true story, the nickname for this ramp in the industry is the Stairway to Heaven. As we saw in this passage, the tempter is sneaky. Satan works in the shadows where we least expect it, and he is deeply entrenched to the point that we might be riding on our very own version of the stairway to heaven, and we don't even realize it. Satan wants nothing more for than for Satan wants nothing more than for you to live in doubt of God's provision over your life without even being aware you were doing it. For many of you, a series like this is uncomfortable because it reminds us of the temptations we are fighting every day. It's a reminder of how hard and hopeless those battles can be. But take heart shades. Where Israel fails, Christ wins. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In this this verse, Paul is writing about idolatry in the same way that Moses was speaking to the Israelites about the greatest commandment in Deuteronomy. He tells them, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Where we fail, Christ wins. Cling to Christ, shades. We are fighting an all-out war and we must regularly cling to God's word to continually remind us of Christ's victory. So I began this sermon by reflecting on what I was doing a year ago. Shades, I don't have to remind you that we are in the wilderness. During this past year, our lives have been turned upside down. Our comfort and security has been challenged in ways we could never anticipate. And our relationships have been strained. And our unity as a church body has been challenged. The night has been dark and the wild animals are at our door. Our only hope is to cling to the cross. 
As a final picture, I'm going to really try not to get emotional here, because, but I love this so much. It's such a great picture. But as a final picture, I want to leave you with a story that Brendan Manning tells in his book, Prophets and Lovers. The early American Indians had a unique practice in training young braves. On the night of the boy's 13th birthday, after his fortitude and maturity had been tested by various trials in hunting, fishing, and scouting, he was placed in the center of a dense forest to spend the entire night alone. It was equivalent to his bar mitzvah or confirmation in the Judeo-Christian tradition, a sign of his adulthood. In a wood so thick that even the moonlight could not penetrate, he was left to the terrors of the darkness. Every twig that snapped seemed like a wild animal ready to pounce. Through the night, he looked anxiously towards the east, awaiting the dawn. After what seemed more like a month than a single night, the first rays of sunlight exposed the interiors of the forest. Slowly, the young boy began to distinguish the bushes, the flowers, the path. Then, to his utter astonishment, he saw his father standing just a few feet away behind a tree, armed with a bow and arrow. Manning goes on to ask, Don't you suppose the boy thought, If I had only known my father was with me, I wouldn't have been afraid of anything. Where the Israelites failed and where we fail, Christ is victorious because he knows his father is standing there with him. Shades, we are being tested in the wilderness, but we have nothing to fear. Christ is here with us. Easter is coming, Shades. Easter is coming. Amen.